When I come at the, this time of an evening to the front of the hall, I'm very much moved to have the opportunity to just pay my respects to the, the Buddha Rupa, which means form or image, the Buddha in the hall. For me, I find it really offers a sense of connecting with a, a lineage, a lineage of, of human commitment and devotion and kindness, compassion and wisdom that has profoundly transformed my life equally as it has profoundly transformed this world. And something about the, the process of just joining in the, the stream and the flow of the Buddha's wisdom and compassion as it has moved from his day and his world through the millennia to our world and our time. And the sense of the Buddha's life as an immense offering. So 35 years from his awakening, sorry, 45 years, my maths is bad, from his awakening until his death, that he spent walking around by foot in India, and what is now mainly India and little Nepal, sharing the teachings. This is a sense of the immensely compassionate being that he was, that comes through in what we have received of his teaching. And so it's, it's this theme that I'd like to pick up today, the theme of compassion, to reflect upon this what this means for us in our practice. And it's very much woven into the fabric of what we're engaging in here. The process and the, pra- the practice of opening our hearts, of connecting with a deepening sense of kindness and a, a deepening capacity to extend kindness to ourselves and to each other and to this world. This is very much a a precious and a natural response to the to the pain, to the suffering that there is in life at times and how much our life and this world yearns for kindness, for friendliness, for care, for well-wishing to be expressed both through our hearts, in our words and equally in our deeds and our, life, our lives. This process of heart opening, of allowing ourselves to become tender, to become softened by the encounter with the practice, by the encounter with ourselves, by the encounter with each other that takes place here in so many different ways. There's a way in which we're softened, a way in which we, though at times it's not easy and sometimes it's not even obvious that it's happening, it's quite clear to me in the feeling and sense in the room and in the, the meetings individually and in groups with you that there's a process of opening that's continuing and deepening here through these days. And in the heart's process of opening, what it starts to show, what it starts to point out or reveal to us, something precious, really profound and very much a jewel at the heart of the teachings is a sense of our relatedness, our connectedness, the fact that we are touched and affected by those around us and that equally we touch and affect them, that we are not, in the way we may have imagined or conceived, separate from the life that is around us and the life that is within us is not different than any other life. This this sense that we may and we have referred to it and we can speak about it and it's an interesting idea if we take it at that level. Interesting, yeah. And yet it's not really the idea that's significant, although it can be useful as a pointer for us. It's what happens for us as we start to open, as we start to feel into our hearts and our lives. And this practice inevitably brings us into contact with that. As we start to feel there's a way in which we may start to sense. And it can come to us clearly and at times 
Maybe not in a way that we even recognize that it's happening. And yet it is. Where we start to see or to understand or simply to live in a way that recognizes that what we are is not different from what is around us, from the life and the beings that we encounter. And that we cannot really set ourselves apart in any absolute or ultimately true way. That all of this life that we inhabit, that we encounter, that we experience, is simply expressions of the same profound and remarkable truth in many different forms, in many different shapes. There's a poem that was, uh, I think, in its day, read rather a lot, and to the point where I, I noticed probably 10 or 15 years ago I stopped using it, cause sort of, uh, and, and I just recently have been rediscovering how much I appreciate it. It's a poem by Thich Nhat Hanh called Please Call Me By My True Names. And many people in the world of spirituality and activism will have heard this poem, certainly when it was written probably 20 or more years ago now, 25 years. And some of the images from it, I guess, relate to things that are somewhat in the past, 20, 30 years ago, and yet the feeling of it speaks still very clearly. And so Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a, uh, a Zen master, a peace activist, and a, uh, a wonderful Dharma teacher from Vietnam, he writes... Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow, because even today I still arrive. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird whose wings are still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly, metamorphosing on the surface of the river. And I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond. And I am also the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself upon the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the twelve-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo, with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who must pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labour camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills up the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and my laughs at once. So I can see that my joy and pain are but one. Please call me by my true names so that I can wake up and so that the door of my heart can be left open. The door of compassion. 
I find it an incredibly beautiful and powerful and profound poem. Thich Nhat Hanh writes in one of his books, Being Peace, where I think this book, this poem was first published, though I'm not sure. He says that in reflecting, he wrote the poem after hearing the story of a young girl who threw herself into the sea, as he describes after being raped by a sea pirate. And he realized that he himself, if he had grown up in the circumstances that that pirate grew up, he could have been the perpetrator of this. Some remarkable humility and wisdom to see that whatever is possible in this world could have been our experience, both sweet and beautiful, but equally terrible or horrific or tragic. And there's something, it's quite a hard poem to hear. I've heard it many times, read it many times, and still it's kind of like, it's quite hard to receive that. And one, one needs to be kind of just a little gentle and giving oneself space to just to, to absorb it so far as it feels right and true to do so. This, this sense of allowing ourselves to be open, to, to really consider that we are what we see around us, equally as what we experience within us. That we can't make any absolute boundaries. That when we allow the door of our heart to be left open, when we don't hold ourselves separate from others or from parts of ourselves or from this very world, when we understand that our co-participation is, is much more fundamental than the appearance of separateness or individuality, which of course has its place as an expression of life, as a manifestation of life, of course, in the way that hands are really different than feet, and they have their place and their function, but they're part of the same organism. To understand that we are part of all of this. Shantideva, who is a, uh, a, a scholar, a mystic and a poet who lived in India in the Middle Ages. Actually, not the Middle Ages, it was probably just before that, around the 6th century. Um, 6th century AD. He, he once reflected on this and observed, he said... Just as we see these limbs as part of this body, can we not see that all beings are simply limbs of embodied life? What would it be for us to look into this world and see it in these terms? To see ourselves as part of this, as a limb of embodied life. When we can allow ourselves to hear, when we can allow ourselves to sense and to feel more deeply into our life and into life itself, which is not different from our life, there's a possibility of responding, responding out of the care that is natural, that is innate in us, and that gets somehow circumscribed by our belief and our identification with a limited part of the totality that we call me or my family or my community or my country, my religious or ethnic or cultural or national grouping or even my species. My, you know, the ways in which we, 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 we sense that the caring of our heart becomes limited because we've not really fully seen how we've boundaried ourselves, how we've limited and constrained our contact with the, the vastness of life, the openness of life, the interpenetratingness of life. And so the sense of listening, 
sense of being here receptive. There's something in the, the human organ and the, the heart, we could say, that has this receptivity, this listening capacity. And the, um, in the, say, the Buddhist cosmology or the sort of the way in which Buddhist teaching refers to the embodiment of compassion. And this is um, various in the way it's quite described and named, but the perhaps familiar names that some of you will have heard of, Kuan Yin or Avalokiteshvara. And uh, this is in fact Kuan Yin, a statue, a rupa of Kuan Yin, who, who is the understood as the embodiment, the representative of compassion. And the translation of the name essentially means the one who listens to the cries of the universe. That sense of resonating with the heart of the world. Allowing ourselves to feel into this, to know this. This is really the invitation of compassion, the invitation of our life, if we wish, and I think we do wish, certainly I wish, to, to live my life in as deep a relationship with what is true and meaningful as is possible. And I trust you do too. I can't imagine why you would be here when, you know, there's probably skiing holidays available at this time. Not to say there's anything wrong with those. But, you know, we, we sometimes see what's, what's important for us. It brings us here. And compassion is understood as this, this quality of heart and mind which is opposed or directly um, the opposite of, we could say, to the wish to, the, or the opposite of cruelty or the wish to cause harm or cause pain, or cause suffering. And it's equally very much the opposite of the, the way in which we can sometimes not really quite want to know about the truth of suffering. That we would rather just, you know, ignorance is bliss, we just don't want to see what's going on. Understandable, because sometimes it's really hard to receive, to hold. And yet compassion really wants to turn towards the suffering of life, to relieve it. To relieve suffering. Compassion is understood in the Dharma teachings, teachings of the Buddha, as a responsiveness. It's not just a feeling or a nice idea, it's a responsiveness. There's something active about it, something very dynamic about it. In fact, often in, in the images of Kuan Yin that one can see, and this, this one is more a meditative pose, and perhaps that's appropriate for the meditation hall, but in many poses one sees her not sitting cross-legged, but with one leg out like this. And it's like she's, I don't know if you can see, it's called royal ease, because she, she looks very graceful in the image often. But it's like she's ready to move, she's ready to engage. She's sort of, in a way, one foot in, in the spiritual, and one foot in the world. And uh, that kind of represents something of, of what compassion reflects and expresses in the sense of being connected to a depth of spiritual understanding and and truth and yet very much engaged, responsive and concerned with life in the world. Compassion is understood as that expression of care, of love, of kindness. We could say that division of metta that is in response to suffering. Just as, and we've, we've mentioned how the, just the quality of metta as a, as a sort of a primary quality is simply a response to beings wish for happiness. We wish them happiness. A response to our wish for happiness. We wish ourselves happiness. That, that basic self sort of concern and cherishing, the wholesome sense of self-concern and self-cherishing. That's there. And the murita, the joy we've talked about, a response to that which is delightful, lovely, fortunate, beautiful in the life of another or ourselves. And so that's another expression of caring and kindness. And compassion, as this third element of expression of care, is in response to where there is suffering, in response to where there is pain.
where there is grief, there is sorrow, there is fear, there is loneliness, there is confusion. And all these things we know, we encounter in life, in our own hearts, and we see in the world and in the lives of others. Compassion as a word. It's like co-com-passion. Com is like with or shared or mutual. And passion, well, it's come to often mean something else in our common English usage, as I guess many of you will know. Its actual root and, and original meaning is actually suffering. So the you know the the the, um, the passion of Christ is what's is his crucifixion, not his enthusiasm for something else, which is how we might think of the word often. So compassion actually comes from the sense of being with the suffering, feeling with, sharing in, partic- co-participating in the suffering. That's what compassion involves or asks us. And you know. A lot of the time, this doesn't sound like such a great idea. It's like, you know, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to share in the suffering of others? It's like, I've got enough, thank you. I'm not even sure maybe I want to share in my own suffering. I'd rather, you know, keep it over on one side. Now, I guess we recognize that tendency. It's familiar to most of us, I think. And, uh, you know, we've spoken about it in different ways and touched on it in our practice together here. And yet, there's something about when we allow ourselves to be touched by the suffering within or around us, that we, when we, when we take it, and this, this is something that's really remarkably liberating in the Dharma teachings, when we understand that suffering is part of the nature of what happens, given that we've been born and will one day die. It's, it's part of the matrix of life. Having been born, we will die. And, and that's hard. With a heart that feels, we will at times feel pain in our hearts. That's the nature of it. It's the nature of it. And we sometimes imagine in our kind of wishful thinking that if we could have done everything perfectly and got it right and had you know perfect circumstances and family and qualities, that somehow our life would have been without any pain or distress or suffering. And yet, it's not true. Having been born, we will lose the things that we're close to because we must die. And having a heart that cares, we will be parted at times from those things that we care for. And the only way to avoid that is to never care for anything. And actually that's even more painful if our heart doesn't have the opportunity to care. So there's going to be suffering in life. Not all of life, not the only experience, of course not. But if we see that that's so, then somehow it's not our fault. It's not that we've done something wrong, that there is the suffering here. It's part of the mixture. It's part of what's true. And it's starting to see that. Rather than when we, when we take the suffering of our life as somehow evidence that we've done something wrong, it has the effect of isolating us. We tend to start to form an identity or a sense of, of being somehow wrong that cuts us off, that disconnects us. It's not just painful, but it separates and disconnects us because we imagine that somehow everyone else isn't like that. And yet if we listen and we speak in a small group and that's one of the values of the small groups that we have we hear others speaking of things that we recognise yeah actually other people experience these things too and something else can start to happen I'd like to read another poem by Naomi Shihab Nye entitled Kindness She says, Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you had in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, 
All this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowds of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you, everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. When we understand truly and deeply that suffering is a shared experience, that it's not our fault, that of course we can transform it through wisdom and compassion, but the, the primary experience is not our fault. Rather than disconnecting us and isolating it, us, ourselves, Opening to suffering in this way and with this understanding in fact connects us profoundly and deeply to each other. And if we think or reflect on those times that we may have shared something really difficult with someone, really painful, going through some really challenging circumstance, how that can bring us together, how deeply we can connect in such situations. And at the moment for myself, my My thoughts and my heart are very often in in Christchurch in New Zealand, which you're probably aware of the earthquake. This this is my home city. And uh, yeah, you know, in some ways, it's just another one of those tragic things that happens in the world. There's not so many people dead compared to many other, it seems, worse tragedies. And yet, for me, it's so clear, those places, those people, friends of mine living there, I don't believe, though I don't know for sure, that anyone I was close to was was hurt or killed. But certainly homes have been destroyed and the life has been up, turned upside down. And just sensing how much... I It's been 22 years since I lived in New Zealand and just a little over that since I was living in Christchurch. But suddenly seeing that situation, I'm reminded of how deeply I'm connected to that place and those people. And it's actually the the suffering that, that speaks to me through that. And I think we know this experience. That, that's a personal experience of mine that feels very immediate to me at the moment. And the sense of the uncertainty and the, the friends who still don't have water and power and or a home to go back to. When we are connected by the suffering of this world rather than repelled by it, when we allow ourselves to feel its shared nature as its deepest truth, it actually, we feel the sense of connection in that so deeply. It becomes tangible in a way that speaking about it and the words don't really express very well. And yet the experience of it can be so clear, so strong, so tangible that what appears as distance in time and space just dissolves. 
And the wish to respond, the wish to support, the wish to give help, even though initially in a situation like what happened in Christchurch, there's nothing, it seemed, that could be really done by me from here. Even calling my friends to see, are you okay, turned out to not be a good thing to do because the few phone lines that were functional or the sort of whatever bandwidth for the cell, cellular mobile network was needed for emergency calls and for people you know, calling from under collapsed buildings. They said, don't call us. Don't call us. Leave the phones free. And so there's the sense of there's the wish to act, this movement to act, that's the experience and the responsivity of compassion. And the, 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 the compassion that comes is just that sense of, may you be safe, may you be well, may you be healed in your suffering, or may you be taken care of in your need, in your struggle, that our heart can just extend and it can feel raw and tender and like the heart bursts in its opening. It's not an easy thing to allow oneself to enter into fully. And yet there's a there's something in it inexpressibly rich and beautiful. And one or two people, or more than one or two, but several people today and in the days have spoken about the tenderness of feeling the heart open, that the the joy and the sorrow come together. The suffering has a sweetness to it as we open, because the sweetness is in the truth and the connection that it invites, that it engenders, that it reveals. And just this, this very pure, this very natural wish for the well-being of others that we, we know. There's a very well-known expression or words from a uh, one of my favourite sort of beings in the the world of the Dharma teachings, Ryo Khan, who's a who was a Zen monk, and I think he lived in about the fifteenth uh, or sixteenth century. I'm not quite sure actually. Um, it might have been the seventh. Actually, yeah, it was around about then. Anyway. And uh, he's delightful, very earthy, very human, very simple and straightforward. And there's one, one, one refrain where he says, Oh, that my monk's robe was wide enough to gather up all the suffering beings in this floating world. And you just have that kind of sense of just, just to have the robe to gather up and just, just to gather in all the suffering beings in this floating world, this world of change and unpredictability in which so many things are uncontrollable and impactful. And they wish to gather it in. And Rio Khan, just a just delightful character. One of the stories about him that I love to share, and some of you will have heard this from me before, I'm sure. But One day in a... In a a cold spring day, probably not dissimilar to the day we we had today. Ryokan was seen in the morning. It was sunny and the frost was just starting to lift off the grass. And he was seen taking the lice out of his robe and placing them on a sunward-facing rock to warm themselves in the sun. Remarkable. And even more remarkable at the end of the day, picking them up <laughs> from the rock and putting them back in his robe. And when he hears a story like that and you wonder, what's in this guy's heart? How, how remarkable, how beautiful. Just so simple, such a small thing. And yet for me it's delightful and touching in the same moment and humbling equally. Like, ah, oh, wow, how beautiful. What the human heart is capable of. Really. And as this practice deepens in our hearts, in our being, 
that responsivity becomes something not that we do, but something that happens. That we might initially feel like we somehow need to lean in that direction, but ultimately it's not so. It's not required. If we allow ourselves to be fully in contact, to be sensitized by life, to be opened by life, the response just comes. Shantideva, who I mentioned earlier, after he, he, he spoke about imagining ourselves to be the limbs of embodied life, he said, When acting on behalf of others, no amazement arises in me. Just like when feeding myself, I expect nothing in return. When acting on behalf of others, no amazement arises in me. Just as when feeding myself, I expect nothing in return. It's like it's complete. It's not like I'm doing this to get something or to help someone. It's not like that somehow, it seems, in Shantideva's understanding and his teaching. And he goes on to say, just as when the foot is sore, the hand rubs it. It's just quite natural. The hand rubs the foot when it hurts. It's not like we think about it, like, you know, can I be bothered rubbing that foot? It's got nothing to do with me. You know, the hand doesn't sort of say, ah, you know, we don't like feet. We rub hands, we don't rub feet. You know? And yet that's sort of what we do, isn't it? Whoever we identify, or when we make our world small, that happens. And yet, of course, the hand and the foot are really different. There's the hand, does some interesting, useful things. There's the foot, does some also helpful things. And they're really different. It's got a different shape. It feels cool. And whereas my foot's quite warm right now. Looks different. Smells different. And yet, are they really different? You know, where does the hand stop and the foot begin? Is there such a place? You know, I can't find actually somewhere where this one stops and the other one begins. They're actually joined together. It's obvious. And yet we talk about the hand, of course, it's fine to talk about the hand. And it's useful not to try and put a shoe on it and, you know, it's not that much help. So we understand the difference in things. But there's something deeper that's true. And, you know, the hand rubs the foot when the foot is sore. And other times, you know, the hand gets to hang out in a comfortable pocket while the foot's schlepping us around, you know, walking up and down. Don't really use that word here, do we? Schlepping. I pick, we do. Okay. I remember picking it up when I lived in America, fifteen years ago, and uh, kind of liked it. So this responsivity comes when we trust in our capacity to open and to hold. What is here? The pain that is in our lives. And as we open to this, we open equally to the pain around us. We can't open to one without the other. They really come together. Sometimes we're touched by what we hear in the world and we feel our heart opening in that. Other times we feel when are touched by where we are challenged in our lives. And in that we sense perhaps empathy for others in their challenges. And as we open in this way, it's important to be really respectful of where we are. To not imagine that somehow we're supposed to be like some great being who's happy to sort of provide regular meals on wheels for a you know, family of lice. You know, that may not be our offering, even though it may be an inspiration to us. And so the sense of offering of compassion needs to be balanced in understanding that we can extend or we can allow the heart to respond where it's able to. And it doesn't have to respond where it's not yet able to. 
It's not that we're somehow demanding that we should be able to do more than we can. And yet be open to the possibility that perhaps we could do a little more than we think we can. We could be more open there. But what's important in that is that sometimes when we hear these teachings, we can feel like somehow it's this injunction, now I've got to go out and save the world. Now I've got to go and sort of be some great sort of servant of humanity. And it may simply be small gestures that are called for from us. And yet, to to really let ourselves know that caring for ourselves and caring for others is equally important. And I had a very... It was actually really quite a, a painful, at the same time, very how to say, sweet, beautiful, I'm not quite sure. Anyway, um, very significant for me experience amongst many when I was travelling in India in my early 20s and um, spending time amongst the, the poor people. And I, I'm, I'm quarter Indian, so I have a, a sense of family there also. My grandmother is Bengali. And so spending time in Calcutta... Um, and seeing that the poverty and the extremes of human suffering that are there on the street, not hidden away, not kept away, sort of tidied away into institutions or back where we don't have to see them. And the, the brightness that was there at times in the eyes of those people who struggled in so many ways with poverty and exploitation, injustice, hunger, disease. And the suffering that was there in those situations for so many of them. I was, I guess I have to say, young and idealistic. And there was some part of me that felt, I should just give everything I have to these people. It could make such a difference for them. I've saved up some money. I was hoping to be travelling for a few years. And yet this very strong sense of, why don't you just give it all away? And I did give in various ways and forms, but I couldn't give it all away. I realised actually, no, I was too attached to my plans and my vision and my hopes for my travels. And it was really painful to see that in myself, to see, ah, oh, actually, yeah, I'm, I'm not able to go that far right now. And yet there was a process over time for me of understanding that when I, when one, when I hit that point, or when any of us, when we hit that point where we can't extend ourselves outwards anymore, that's the point where we need to extend the compassion inwardly. It's like, ah, oh, when I've hit the amount of giving that I can give and I'm starting to get a bit scared about what, how hard that's going to be for me now, that's actually where my fear or my neediness is being exposed and rubbed up against. And that means I need to turn that compassion inwardly here. And in doing that, in being willing to be responsive, there's a natural fluidity that the caring for other, so-called others, caring for oneself, so-called not other, that this actually becomes the same process and that one direction of that responsivity to another or to oneself is not better or worse or even different in the end. It's not even different in the end. It's simply how compassion flows in this world, in our heart. And so in the quiet Offerings of well-wishing for those who may suffer and for our own suffering, wishing healing and well-being. In those gentle, simple intentions we can offer in our practice, caring for others and their suffering, caring for ourselves, this is the, the movement and the flow of compassion. And it's equally important as the expressions in the world and the actions we can take that are within what's possible for us in our circumstance, in our condition, where we are. These two are the expressions of, of the heart that's been opened or that's opening to the deepest truth of our connection and our caring at the very heart of it.
And so there's this sense of just a simpleness, an organic naturalness to compassion. And there can also be a vast vision and the sense of the transformation of life, of this world of all beings. To serve, to support, to heal and to nourish all that live, all of life. Nothing left out, no one left out. No part of ourselves or another disregarded. There's a a vast vision in this teaching and practice that we're engaged in, that we're sharing together, that we become part of, that we become part of as we join into the, the stream and the flow and the current of the Dharma teachings, the Buddha's offering of compassion, life's offering of compassion to itself, to each of us and to all that we are and to all that is. And as, a, as an expression of this, which again isn't to set up some kind of I should think like that or feel like that, but just to sense into the possibility of that, the fullness of that aspiration. Coming back to Shantideva again. This was his, his vow, his aspiration for his life. He said, May I be a guard for those who are without protection, a guide for those who journey on the road. For those who wish to to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an island for those who yearn for landfall and a lamp for those who long for light, for those who need a resting place, a bed. For all who need a helper, may I be a servant. May I be the wish-fulfilling jewel, the vase of plenty, a word of power and the supreme remedy. May I be the tree of miracles and for every being, the abundant cow. Came from India. Like the great earth and the other elements, enduring as the sky itself endures, for the boundless multitude of living beings, may I be the ground and the vessel of their life. Thus for every single thing that lives, vast in number like the boundless reaches of the sky, may I be their sustenance and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. And so long as any living beings endure, may I too remain and help relieve their suffering. So let's just sit quietly together for a little while.
So may we all, in our practice here together and through our lives, deepen in kindness and tenderness and compassion for the healing of our hearts and the healing of this world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.